I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Have you ever met someone whose sheer presence feels like an unconditional protective force that says, I got you, love. Feel free to release all your hurts. I got you. Someone whose very nature gives you a sense of safety. For some of us, that quality is something we yearn for. And for others, that quality is terrifying. What if safety wasn't actually something that's universal? What if what feels secure for one person is not necessarily comfortable and supportive for someone else? What if trauma actually disrupts our ability to read cues of safety and warps our barometer for what and who gives us protection and well-being? In this episode, I speak with therapist and teacher extraordinaire, Deb Dana, as we dive deep into the unpacking of what actually is safety and how do we cultivate it. Trigger warning, Deb Dana is a total safety flirt. Before we get started, here's some nervous system geek vocabulary that's gonna be helpful for you. In this episode, we use terms like dorsal and ventral states borrowing from the language of neuroscience. The ventral state, which Deb Dana calls the safe and social state, is associated with feelings of safety, connection, and calm. It's as if you're comfortably enjoying a warm cup of tea on a sunny patio with your closest friends. Your heart rate is regular, your breath is easy, you're able to engage in social connection, listen, communicate, and feel at peace. That's the ventral vagal state. The dorsal vagal state is often referred to as the shutdown state. It's the part of our nervous system assigned to the task of energy conservation. Imagine a small bunny suddenly freezing in its tracks, playing dead to escape the attention of a luring predator. This is an adaptive response. The bunny's nervous system is trying to protect it from a perceived threat. In humans, this dorsal response might feel like disconnection, numbness, freeze, or even a sense of being out of body. That's the dorsal vagal state. And without further ado, let me introduce you to Deb Dana. Deb Dana is a clinician, consultant, author, and speaker specializing in complex trauma. Her work is focused on using the lens of polyvagal theory to understand and resolve the impact of trauma in our lives. Deb has a busy career training therapists around the world in how to bring a polyvagal approach into their clinical practice, and also works with agencies and larger systems to explore how to incorporate a polyvagal perspective. She is a founding member of the Polyvagal Institute, a consultant to Cryone Clinics, and advisor to Unite. Let's get this started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Gently Used Human Podcast. I am Dr. Scott Lyons, and I am so excited to have my dear friend and very special guest, Deb Dana, with us today. Welcome, Deb, to the Gently Human. Oh, I messed that up. Welcome, Deb. Just fucking, fuck it. Welcome, Deb. <laughs> I love it. And it's interesting because gently used human, I was thinking, I think I'm a little further along that continuum to the extreme, it feels like at the moment, more than gently used. Yeah. <laughs> You're like Uber used? Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> going in that direction. <laughs> Uber used just means there's more wisdom that's going to pour out. Oh, that's a lovely reframe. Thank you. Yeah, you're <laughs> welcome. I love a good reframe. Now, Deb, you are known as one of the best therapists of our time. And yet, you have killed every houseplant you have ever had. Can you help me understand this? This is true. Even my bamboo, yeah. which I understand is really hard to kill. <laughs> so, yep. Deb, this continues to blow my mind that like truly I have seen you in action like you are a masterful practitioner I've seen you transform trauma in someone's body and their whole life has changed and yet you killed your bamboo I did kill my bamboo 
And thank you for the kind words about my work with humans, gently used humans or uber-used humans. I really do love working with living mammalian nervous systems, and apparently I don't do so well with plants. But you know what's interesting? Because my dad had a green thumb. He was such a wonderful, he loved plants. He loved growing things. And so there's a longing inside me to have some of my dad's legacy, which apparently I don't have, but it comes back to that interesting growing up time we live in where you think after your parents are gone, you think, oh, I wish I had fill in the blank, whatever it is. And so, you know, I was not able at the time, I even if I'd thought about it, I wouldn't have done it. But looking back on it, I wish I'd spent some time with him in the garden because he'd probably been able to show me some of the ways you care for plants. <laughs> Maybe not bamboo. I don't know. Everybody says you can't kill bamboo. And I have this thought that it's some bad omen, but whatever. But it is interesting how the things that, that are in our life now kind of tie back to somewhere. And, and that ties back to my dad. Well, clearly green thumb is a recessive gene. Clearly, Let's just be clearly. very honest about the science of that <laughs> shit right there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Another good reframe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, where either of your, like you have an extraordinary capacity of empathy, which we'll talk about as very much part of your work. Was that present in your childhood? No. No, I grew up in a very, I might call it distant cold or in the in the land of reframing that we're in today i could call it quiet and very deep in the intellectual world right so depending on you know how you want to look at it as a kid it felt distant cold but you know i also can appreciate some of the other stuff so no there was no outward expression or feeling of connection even much less empathy compassion so you know it kind of found its way into my system Somehow, right? Wow. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm so curious. Like, to grow up in such a cold, what sounds like emotionless, expressiveless environment, and to be the person that you are. Like, I mean, I've had conversations with you where I am, I just feel seen. And like, you, you don't even say anything. It's just like a presence. And sometimes I just think of you and cry. Oh. Yeah. I mean, because, you know. I think about all your plans. I hope, I hope it's not. <laughs> hope it's not. Thank you. Yes, I was going to say. Hope it's not because I've I've tortured you in some way. But you're thinking about my poor plants. Okay. Well, that's my love language. So go ahead and torture me. Got, uh, all right. I can tell by your gorgeous orchids in the background there. They're truly beautiful. You know, it's interesting because I do enjoy the way I have changed over my lifetime. And it's interesting to kind of think about what were the important moments when I found the missing experiences. And I think for me, it's helpful because I can always hold another person in that place of hopefulness because I look at the way I've changed. I've you know transitioned from a, a kid who was very hiding in the background, trying to be invisible to this place where I get to see people and be with people and, and put my work out into the world. And, and because of that, as you know, we are seen, which is terrifying in some ways, right? Not always great to be seen or not by everybody, right? But I found the pathway to that place where I could do that. And so because I could do it, I think anybody could do it, right? I think the capacity lives inside us. And, and I don't know where those, those seeds are, except I do really believe that we are born with the capacity for ventral. We know that. And ventral holds the capacity for compassion and empathy and connection and all those things. So, right, in my home growing up, ventral wasn't <laughs> the energy that was around all the time, right? But when I found a place where I could create for myself a home, a connection, a community that was filled with ventral. When I connected there, then my ventral could, you know, bloom if, using your flowers. See, I can bloom ventral. You can bloom ventral. <laughs> I can tend to ventral. <laughs> now, just so our audience doesn't think that ventral is a sex terminology, could you help maybe <laughs> unpack it a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. I love it. So ventral is the state of our nervous system that allows us to feel safe enough, regulated enough to be seen in the world, to connect with others, to offer that 
seeing and witnessing to others as well to receive an offer. So it's the place of well-being, right? Both physical and psychological well-being. And so it is a lovely place to be. And it is involved in sex, right? You know, we got to say that too. Oh, it's spicy, Deb. You got to have ventral active and alive in your system to be in that connection, right? To be in the intimate loving connection anyway. Yeah. I love that. And it's not only, you know, a state, it's also in reference to an anatomical part of us, which I imagine. It is. It is a part of our biology. And again, I think that's really the helpful thing to know is that every human has this part of their biology. It's not that I came into the world with that part of my biology. It just didn't get nurtured in the way perhaps it would have in another family environment, but it was just there waiting for the moment when somebody would water it, feed it, right? And then it then it could grow. And, and that's true for all of us. That honestly makes me want to cry. I mean, like that is the embodiment of hope and the science of hope in that way of like going, yeah, you were born with the capacity or the potentiality. And if it wasn't nurtured, as you said, we can find it. We can find peace. We can find safety. We can find ease. Even if we grew up in an environment that was cold or chaotic or distant, as you said. Yeah. When you just said that, I like those two references, cold and chaotic, because that's sort of the oppressing dorsal disconnecting experience or the the overwhelming flooding sympathetic chaotic experience. And most of us or many of us grew up in homes that well, everybody grew up in a home that had a flavor of those because it exists everywhere. Some of us grew up in homes that were really ruled by those energies. Yeah. Cold and Chaos is also the name of my band. <laughs> okay. We were looking for a drummer. How good are you? <laughs> oh, you know, I could probably be the drummer. I, I might have fun because what do you do when you drum? You get to, or my dream is you get to bang on things and you get to make loud rhythms and all that. And isn't that the antidote to dorsal invisibility? Mm, mm. So sign me up. I want to be the drummer. Yeah. Well, that brings (laughs) me into my next question. Deb, do you recognize this? That is the rhythm of regulation, which is the name of Ah, one of your books and your website. And I'm hoping you can unpack for us, what is this rhythm of regulation beyond (laughs) that sick beat I just laid down? So is that your rhythm of regulation? No. Is that what you would? Mine is more like... (laughs) (laughs) It's like more like a pterodactyl (laughs) that's on fire. Ah, okay. Just a great image. What is your rhythm of regulation? Mine is more of a... Yep, I'm trying to come up with. I've got the. I've got the sailboat, a wave. Oh, sailboat! Yeah, not a sailboat. It's got to be a like a jellyfish going. You know how they go like undulating through the water Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Like a jellyfish or or a manta ray. Oh, that's mine. Oh, okay, that's my sort of yeah. So when you did that thing, it was like, ooh, that's not my rhythm. Mm. But that could be your rhythm. I think everybody has to find their own rhythm. The rhythm that for them feels like, oh, this brings me to that place of regulation. So again, everybody has their own. Yeah. Well, this sounds like a point where we get to define too, like, what do we mean by regulation? And then, of course, the popular terms of like co-regulation. <laughs> right. Yeah. So self-regulation and co-regulation. Yeah. I like to just think of regulation, regulation. as a huge sort of term and regulation in the rhythm of regulation for me when I came up with that simply means the rhythm in which my nervous system, my brain body system, both together are collaborating, cooperating and helping me navigate the world from a place of feeling safe enough to engage, experiment, explore, be curious. So that's the rhythm of regulation. And for everybody, it feels a bit different. Like you're, you might be more sympathetic. Are you more sympathetically charged, do you think, than me? Are you more on the sympathetic than the dorsal? I'm more on the pterodactyl side of things. All right, you're the pterodactyl. So yeah. your rhythm yeah. of regulation is going to- No, I'm a more higher toned. Feel, look, see, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I like your pterodactyl. I'm going to be the manta ray. You be the pterodactyl. <laughs> and, you know, we'll <laughs> it's good. S- we'll see where we meet in the middle. Exactly. I'll come to the surface, but you gotta you gotta meet me there because I can't come on land. <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet if you like rise up to the surface of the ocean, I can land on you, and we can we can start our band there. We can. Yeah. I let's do it. Let's yeah. do this. Yeah. 
So, you know, everybody has their own rhythm. And the work is to honor what your rhythm is. And then you can be curious about how you can shape your rhythm or when your rhythm changes. But the rhythm of regulation is built into our system. We just have to find it. Yeah. I mean, what I appreciate so much, too, is in your work is that regulation doesn't just mean I'm calm. Oh, God, no. Mm -mm. Thank you for saying, oh, my God, no. Yeah. Because there's just like, there's like this idea in wellness or psychology or whatever field we're in right now that like the ultimate ideal state or of our work is to get calmness, which is absolutely not what we're looking for. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, when somebody tells you or invites you or encourages you to calm down, what happens? I get mad. My pterodactyl starts screeching at a very high-pitched sound. Yeah. Right, because it's like, no, that's that's crazy. I'm I am in this place because I feel in danger, and so all this energy is coming and telling me to calm down is not going to do a damn thing. Right. So, what we want to do is understand that calm is one of the flavors of regulation. But there are a whole bunch of flavors. You know, I can even be angry mm-hmm. and regulated, right? Because I can be angry and feeling safe enough and solid enough and anchored enough to express my anger, or I can be angry in a sympathetic, dysregulated fight place. So when somebody says, oh, I'm feeling really angry, I say, oh, great. What state is that coming from? That's what I'm curious about. You know, are you angry and anchored or are you angry and pterodactyl? <laughs> Yeah. Hey, lay off the pterodactyl. Yeah, you started it. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that. Angry and anchored. Angry and anchored. Yeah, it's like purposeful. Stand up for what I believe in. Passionate. All these things. And I can also be playful. I can be calm. I might be in that Zen place, but that's not all of what shows up in ventral. And I'm glad you brought that up because I get so frustrated when people, you know, equate ventral with calm. You get angry and anchored. I do. I do. I get angry and anchored. Exactly. And then I spend time trying to help people understand there's a whole range of flavors of ventral. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying, can you discover all the flavors of ventral? And I love that. And it's so important to identify that this is really about what is an optimal range to which we can be Mm -hmm. present and attentive to what is happening within us and in the environment. And that's really what we're talking about regulation is like that window, that capacity, that container that we can be here with what's here and address it. Yes. Sometimes maybe calm is getting back into that window or back into that container or literally back into our bodies, but it's not the ultimate state to which we process and metabolize and ride the waves of life. Yeah, I like that. I like the thought of container, but the container has to be so big, right? Because if I think of a little container, then I get, oh, you know, don't get me out of here. But but some sort of a fluid, big container that can hold all of what's happening for me feels feels interesting. Like an aquarium? I, was th- I went back to plants that I kill and I thought, I don't oh. want to be in a plant pot. Thank you. I need, it's like a container that the walls move maybe like an ocean, right? You know, for me, it's, it's, it's big, it's expansive, but you know, you're in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about the walls moving, that's resilience. Yes. That's resilience. You know, and the ability to be like, well, last week I couldn't be present with my mother-in-law and I couldn't be angry and anchored, but this week I can be angry and angered and feel compassion. Ooh. Yeah. And then the interesting thing is to sort of be curious about what changed between last week and this week. Yeah. Right. Why am I able this week and not last week? Because that tells us what are the conditions that help us be more resilient. I love knowing where I am and figuring that out, but then I want to know, so how did I get here? That's where my brain goes. So how did I get here? Because it would be nice to be able to come here more often. Instead of being in that angry and not anchored place, I kind of like this. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting 
other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. Yeah, that's like mapping the resources of like what lets you be regulated, what lets you be here. So it's like, is putting my dog on my lap the resource that lets me be more here so I can process it? Is it thinking about Deb Dana and I skipping along the old brick road going to, you know, <laughs> which I fantasize about a lot for some weird reason, Deb. And, <laughs> but I mean, truly. The yellow the, brick road or me at the yellow brick road? What do you all of us, about? all of us. All Don't of us. Get dirty, we're all Deb. on the yellow brick road. <laughs> I love, I just wanted to know where we were, but we're all on the yellow brick road. I like it. I like it. And so, I'm, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say your yellow brick road. I, I like the, it's always walking. Ocean's big in my world. And it's always walking this long, expansive beach that I have no idea what it's leading, but it's a lovely walk. So, you know, I, yeah. My idea of resilience, and this is the weirdest image, but it's been like so present in my mind for years. There was a video game when I was a kid called Sonic the Hedgehog. And they made movies about it later, but he's going through this tube essentially and collecting coins and like the tube gets smaller or bigger. And that to me was always like my image of resilience is like the growing tube, but you could still be able to be there and move through it. And sometimes something would happen and he would like get shoved out of the tube. That to me was like, oh, that's what it's like to be dysregulated. Right. Right. I love that. It's not that he's angry or sad or any of those things, as long as he's moving in the tube, collecting the coins of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all those experiences exist in the tube, right? Yeah. They're all there. And as long as we're feeling enough of that organizing, regulated, safe energy, not that it's always a happy thing to be, and we do suffer still, but it's different than being dysregulated and in survival where you're limited to what you can do. You can't collect the coins. Right. In sympathetic, you can fight or you can run. And coins mean nothing to you. Yeah. Right. And in dorsal, you're floating and you don't even know there are coins. So you survive, but you don't then learn how to get back into yeah. the tube. And I love what you said, because it's like all the rainbow of emotions, the rainbow of experiences do happen in that tube. And if we're suppressing or repressing them, we actually get kicked out of that tube and fall into dysregulation. Yeah, the trick is to be able to know, oh, I am feeling a deep sadness and be with it from within the container, whatever that container is for you, right? Rather than being pushed out, you know, like Sonic the Hedgehog pushed out of the tube. And then you have no way to be with the deep sadness. You, you're hijacked by it. And you're in it instead of being able to be with it. So, yeah. Do you think on our next movie night together, we should watch those movies? Probably. I, I, I missed it. I totally missed Sonic the Hedgehog. So <laughs> I'm going to have to go find Sonic. He's probably available on some platform. I'll go Lots find him. platforms. <laughs> and there was like a cartoon. Anyways. So, Deb, you have written many books on polyamory. And, oops, sorry, polyvagal <laughs> theory. I'm thinking, have I? Let me think. What 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 version of me did that? <laughs> I mean, it it is an interesting thing to think about in terms of nervous systems, right? Yeah. Polyamory, because it's it is fascinating to think how can my nervous system stay safe and feel connected in a relationship that has all these moving parts. I think it's more complicated than people sometimes head into, and there has to be a lot of clarity if you're going to be in a polyamorous relationship because the nervous system needs that context and, and connection and choice in order to feel trusting enough, right? 
not where you were going, but it is interesting. I love that you took my little Freudian slip and ran with it down (laughs) the yellow brick road. Yeah. 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 Because really, I mean, the nervous system is at work no matter what we're talking about. And it can either support safety in the experience, whatever it is, and deepening of connection and intimacy, or it can get in the way of that. Yeah. I want to go to somewhere very, like, you use the word safety now several times. And I think we take it for granted what safety actually is and how it's created and the barometer of it can go wrong. But let's start with like, Deb Dana, what is safety? I also love saying your full name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that is one I of my that. one of I my was, resources for regulation. The whole name, I like it. The I whole like name. <laughs> oh, great. I love it. In Europe, that's all I'm called is Deb Dana. Or in Europe, it's usually Deb Dana, right? And so I was with a colleague and his son was there. And his son thought that was my first name, Deb Dana. That's my name. I thought, that is so sweet. So anyway... But we got off on a tangent there. Okay, let's come back to safety. And before we start thinking about safety or the word safety, we want to say the word safety is not always a safe word for people. And so the first thing is to help people create their own word that would bring the qualities that we're going to talk about of safety. I use safety because it does land for me and it's easily translatable across any language and culture. People understand basically the concept, but what word would you use? What would your word be for safety? I love that you're asking me my safe word. (laughs) (laughs) On the Gently Used Human podcast, you are asking me my safe word, which you were the first guest to ever make me blush. Congratulations. Congratulations. (laughs) I'm going to add that to my CV. (laughs) (laughs) Not many people have accomplished that. I will be honest. You know, to me, it's, I don't have a word. I have more of a quality or a description of what it does. I'm fine with the word safety. It doesn't have a significant like resonance for me, but that's a great question, Deb. I'll come back to it. You'll come back. As we define it, maybe there's a word that it resonates with me. The simplest way I think about safety, and safety is, you can't define safety. It's not a brain thing. It's an embodied experience. And so for me, safety is the experience of feeling enough of that regulation, the nervous system regulation. So for me, it gets pretty simple. I just look through the nervous system. It's simple because when I have enough of that ventral energy alive and active in my system, then I feel safe enough. And I think we need to qualify safe enough, not safe, but safe enough to then move forward, engage, do whatever. So I think if I'm helping someone else understand it, it's that moment when your biology is balanced, regulated, and your brain and body are working together to move you out into the world or into connection with something. Yeah. Yeah, I can really resonate with that. Yeah, I mean, safety for me, it's such a visceral experience. It's like the conditions and the feeling that allows me to settle into myself. Mm -hmm. It's like safety is my permission. Maybe that's the word I would use a little bit more is just this permission, like this permission to be vulnerable in the arms of another person, the permission to be in contact with myself, the permission to stay with whatever the environment or the conditions are in the environment, or leave if I need to. I like permission. Yeah. Or leave. You have choice. Because when we're in this place of safety or permission, connection, welcome, whatever we want to call it, we have then access to those pathways of connecting to myself, connecting to others, connecting to the world around us, and connecting to spirit, right? And so those pathways are sort of open and inviting, and and we're curious about them. We can only do that when we're in that place of of permission. Yeah, I mean, so often I think we might define something by its opposite, like safety is the opposite of threat, but I don't actually experience that. Like, I could be with some of the elements of threat if there's some sense of safety, like the permission to be and adapt to it, even if it means me running away, like at least it's like I'm here to be part of that choice making. 
Right. Because when they're in that place of permission, your brain is working with your body, right? And so you have choice. You can make an informed decision about should I go or should I stay, right? Is that a lyric of a song? Should I go or should I stay? Just, it is. I just said it and went, oh, I think should I've- Should I go now? Should, uh, yeah. We'll cover it in our band for sure. Okay. Well, let's. Yeah. <laughs> but what you're talking about is there's enough safety. There are enough cues of safety so that you can then be with the cues of danger. I think that's always happening. We are never, or I think rarely in a place where we're only experiencing cues of safety, right? Especially not in the world we're living in now. There's cues of danger all over the place. But when we have enough cues of safety, when we can hold on to those, we can be with the cues of danger in a different way. Could you identify some cues of safety? And then there's something interesting is like, and then the whole process of actually being able to receive them is a different thing. Yes, and how about that? Yes, and I can tell you some cues of safety for me. Yeah. But they may not be for you. But we look for cues of safety in, in the internal experience. So what inside my body helps me feel that I'm okay, that I'm safe? So sometimes it's sense of energy moving, it's a you know, my heart rate is regular, my I can breathe, you know, those sorts of things, digestion's working. And you find cues of danger in there too, right? But that's one of the places to look. The In the environment is another place to look. And so what are the cues of safety in an environment for me? Nature is a big one for me. So when I'm out in nature, I can feel safer than when I'm in a big city. When I'm surrounded by a lot of people, it's harder for me than when I'm with fewer people or with a small group I know. Right. So familiarity for me. For other people, it's the opposite. They love to be around new, different people with city energy. I know you're giving me that look like not you, but there are people in the world for whom that is true. So we want to really be curious about what brings you a cue of safety because then you can bring more of that in. Yeah. Right. I love that recognition that we are all so unique and that there's not one set of cues of safety for all of us, which means that we also have to investigate and get curious, not just with ourselves, but with our partners or with friends or family about like, what, like that is a love language is learning people's cues of safety. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then again, it's that two-step process. We, we explore, we get the information and then what do we do with it? Right. That's step two. What do we do with it? If I can hold on to it, if I know that one of my partner's cues of safety is to not have a lot of buzzing energy around him, then can I remember that enough so that because I like having my grandkids around and they have a lot of buzzing energy, how can I work it so that I can get my needs met and respect his needs? Right. So again, it's that both and piece. And if we do the either or, I think we get in trouble. Because I could say, oh, I can't have my grandkids in the house because it messes with his regulation, but then I suffer. Mm -hmm. Or I could ignore him and only do me, then he suffers. But how can we do it together? So we're always looking for that nervous system negotiation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I used to do couples work, and the way that I would assess in a first session if I was willing to work with them which is a very interesting <laughs> position as a therapist to be like, I'm going to decide. It's going to be a mutual decision, but I'm also going to decide. Is was there any, in the Venn diagrams of their rhythm, was there any overlap? And if not, I was not the right therapist for them. I was not willing to work with them. Uh... If I could see in the first session that there was some middle ground meeting places, even just the littlest amount, I was like, I can feel and see tangibly the hope and my capacity to work with couples. Exactly. I did a lot of work with a wonderful group of people when we were starting out and, and we worked with families. And I had a colleague who often worked with one partner and I would work with the other. And we became known as the therapist who helped couples find graceful endings <laughs> because it was that sort of thing. It's like there's no, they are done. And they know they're done, but can we help them be done gracefully? You were the Kevorkians of relationships. <laughs> oh, is Not that sure inappropriate? I'm wanting that. <laughs> I don't think I want that. I <laughs> what, what, what could it be? Let me think. <laughs> I love it. The angels of death of relationships. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes it is that 
you know, we just need to recognize something is over. Yeah. And how do we help it come to a completion that feels kind or has kindness at least within it? And I don't think that's the way the world works nowadays. I think kindness is not, you know, we're, we're always, we're looking to gain something or, you know, something rather than joining. Yeah. I'll be an angel. I don't think I will be an angel of death. Thank you anyway. Can I be a different angel? I mean, you can be, you're the <laughs> Deb Dana angel. I don't know. Come up with your own angel I, I, name. I don't want to be the angel of death. <laughs> of relationships. <laughs> yeah. My creative director for Rhythm of Regulation said she's going to name me the godmother of glimmers. So I think I'll take oh, that instead. Okay. I, Can I be the godmother of glimmers? Glimmers in like glam? No, glimmers as in those micro moments of ventral that spark us just during the day, like a micro moment. It's all we're looking for. Those micro moments really can change our sense of the day, change our sense of the moment. So glimmers, looking for glimmers. Glimmers. And like, is that a moment where I just feel like awe or is it a moment of ease or? All of that. There are many flavors of glimmers. Like when I first started writing about glimmers, it was sparks of joy, sparks of happiness. But then, you know, I found, oh, there's sparks of magic. There's sparks of awe. There's sparks of all the flavors of ventral. There's a spark, just a tiny spark of it. Mm -hmm. And that's a glimmer. Mm, I love that. So I'm going to have my wand and I'm going to. I was just imagining yeah. you as yeah, like. Thank you. <laughs> as a glimmer queen. It, it looked a little bit more like a drag queen, but I love it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was like very RuPaul's Drag Race glimmer outfit. Yep. Yep. Perfect. We'll do this for movie night. We'll <laughs> yep. Let's do it. Yep. <laughs> so there's this interesting idea and, and certainly overlays with my work in your work is like where someone can receive or even catch cues of danger, but not cues of safety. And so even though cues of safety are there, they're not able to absorb them or receive them. And that's a really interesting phenomenon when we're locked into cues of danger perceptually. Yeah. And it is very common, isn't it? And you know, part of that's our built-in negativity bias that helped us survive all these eons, right? And part of it is as soon as we are feeling endangered and a survival energy activates, it then blocks us from being able to look for, notice, take in the cues of safety, right? And so we have to really have a practice that helps us intentionally look around, right? I would do this with clients, but if we do it upon reflection, they'd bring me a moment and they'd bring it to life for me and they'd show me all the cues of danger. And I'd say, okay, now from this place where we're together, let's look around the same and notice what were the cues of safety that were there, but you couldn't find them at the moment. And we begin to look for them. And so we build the practice doing it that way so that then when you're in a moment that feels just slightly dangerous, you have enough remembering of that experience to look around and go, oh, but wait a minute, there's a cue of safety. But you have to start by looking back at a moment and then you have to start with the moments that just feel a little bit distressing and build the capacity. Yeah. I love that. That gives me glimmer shivers. And yeah, one of the practices that I've done a lot with folks in those conditions is what I call marinating in the good. So it's a titrated, as you're naming, like a titrated entry into like little moments of safety cues. And then I talk about like, can you dip your toe in that bath? Can you bring your leg into that bath? Can, so it's like no. lowering your body in. It's like, can your skin breathe in that bath? Like really taking it in like a sponge, even if it's just a little bit. Yeah. And, and I like that. And I think, can you dip your toe in and then can you take your toe out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we need to do both. We need to know, oh, I can dip my toe in. Oh, and I can also take it out again. Right? That's that management over. I get to choose, which is so important for us. Oh, yes, I can I can dip it in and I can retreat again. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're really naming something that's so powerful as a therapeutic technique because we go, oh, you should just marinate in the good and that's it. But knowing that I also have choice in that is a deep restoring of agency that is often overrun when we have trauma. 
Yeah, it's often the missing experience, isn't it? And so we're helping the nervous system have the new experience, the experience it didn't get. And once the nervous system has an experience of that, then it it actually, we're talking about play, it can get playful. Like, oh, so dip toe in, dip toe up. What's that? You know, I'm going back in my childhood, you know, you put your left toe in, put your left toe oh, in, yeah, the shake hokey, it out, yeah, that one, the, the, hokey, the hokey pokey, right? right? You know, I mean, so, you know, we're doing it's sort of that thing, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out. And it can be fun. Yeah. It can be fun. And I think play, playfulness, not play, but playfulness is so important in our work with, with anybody, but especially with trauma survivors, because playfulness has not been something they could experience because their system's focused on survival. So can we have a moment? I can imagine you brought a lot of humor, playfulness to your work, right? I use most of the sessions as yeah. a therapist practicing my stand-up routine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I mean, I love humor. I love banter back and forth, as you probably can tell. And for some clients, that's great. For other clients, it's like, no, that feels really scary. So, you know, even with playfulness, you figure out what is that nervous system? How can that nervous system experience a micro moment of playfulness? Yeah. Right. And it's so interesting when playfulness, it's not only that it gets locked out, but it can feel dangerous in the sense that like, if I play, if I find curiosity, I will lower myself into vulnerability and possibly be attacked or be at risk yep. because I'm not using exactly. every ounce of my energy and attention to monitor the cues of danger. Yeah. And so when you're working with someone and they have a first experience of feeling that ventral safety, it can feel really dangerous. And clients would say, oh, that feels off. I said, of course it does. Your nervous system doesn't know this place, hasn't visited it often. We're just going to keep dipping a toe into that place of connection, right? And sooner or later, it'll feel a little more comfortable, but you always want to normalize. It's like, of course, your nervous system hasn't had the experience of visiting that place often. So yes, it can feel really dangerous. And then the other thing, when when clients actually get to sort of understand, I've got this place in ventral where I can be alert, ready, know what's going on around me, you know, have lots of options and choices for what I can do, right? Which you talked about making an intentional choice. We can compare it to that sympathetic hypervigilance. And when they can feel the difference, they choose, oh, I want to be in this other place. I don't want to be hypervigilant because my narrow focus, my prefrontal is not working. I can't problem solve and plan in this other place. I can be on guard, aware, alert, but I have options. I have choice. So you know, it's that lovely difference to begin to feel. So yeah, again, it's a new place for many of our clients to be in that place and know I am safer actually here in that regulation than I was in survival. Yeah. And this is where like that, as we were talking about before, like the barometer of safety really gets skewed and to where we're searching for things like people who will never meet our needs as like this skewed concept of safety. It's not really safety, but it's this skewed concept of familiar where like familiar and safety get confused. Yes. they And unfamiliar then equates with danger, unpredictable danger rather than unpredictable. Ooh, exciting. Yeah. Or unfamiliar. Ooh, novel new experience. It's danger because it has been that way. If you think about growing up in a, in an unsafe environment, with unsafe or unpredictable people around you, then of course, unfamiliar, unsafe, unpredictable, they're all dangerous. And your nervous system learned that, right? So now your nervous system has to be introduced to the experience that, oh, unpredictable can be exciting, right? I was talking to my granddaughter the other day and she was talking about her stomach hurt because we were going to do something new and, and she and, you know, was talking about being worried. And I said, well, what if that was excitement? right? And it was like, oh, let's think about that, right? We just automatically put it with, you know, stomach hurts, worry, rather than stomach hurts, we're excited, right? So it's interesting the way we hook things together, and then it becomes automatic. Not only is that a beautiful reframe technique, but it's also identifying like, how we might register certain body cues, you know, emotion is a body cue, it's a somatic signal, it's a signal. And like worry, she had it in her tummy, like that's a signal. And 
if we're more attuned to cues of danger, we're going to also filter all our cues through that lens. And so something like a little butterfly of excitement actually can be interpreted as worry, concern. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to try and tease that apart with clients. And, you know, I, I even know for myself, I had a heart valve replaced, right? And so it was a fascinating experience. And some of the same sensations before the new valve are after the new valve, but they have a different meaning to them, right? But I had to work consciously in the months after to remind myself this is a body sensation and allow different stories to emerge and then say, which story am I going to choose, right? It's like, choose your own adventure, right? I'm going to choose the, the, oh, this is my new valve working and I'm getting a signal about something rather than, oh my God, it's, you know, I'm dying, right? But again, we can't choose our own adventure unless we have some of that ventral safety energy on board. You are not allowed to choose your own adventure from a survival state. Your survival state chooses it for you. Yeah, beautifully said. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. And I think, you know, this might be an important transition into understanding, like, where do we learn that process of regulation? Like, how does it develop? In a just and equitable world, how about that? What's that? <laughs> I know. I was trying to think, what's the word I want to use? And I like those words. <laughs> those you are know, good words. Just an equitable world. You would come into the world and you'd be met by a regulated nervous system in the form of your, your caregiver, whoever that carer is, right? And that person, through their regulation, would begin to help you understand what it feels like to be in a co-regulating, safe relationship. And from there, you then begin to explore self-regulation. That's the way it's supposed to work. I think for so many people, it doesn't work that way. And we don't teach it, I don't think, in schools. And I mean, we talk so much about self-regulation, right? We forget that co-regulation needs to happen too, right? And when we develop you know, developmental trajectory, it should happen first. That'd we should co-regulate before we self-regulate. So this emphasis on independence and self-regulation and doing it for yourself, I think, is is misguided. I think we need to also understand we need community, right? We need connection and community and others. You talked earlier about feeling safe in the arms of another. That is our quest, right, as humans, is to have people we feel safe being with in that way. And certainly the the pandemic interrupted that, right? When people became dangerous for everybody. Yeah. Right? And now we're trying to figure out how do we come back and now we've got all of the unrest that's going on in the world where we've divided into separate groups and how do we come back together, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating time to be looking at the world through the lens of our biology because if you look through biology it's fairly simple. 
right? You can't be sympathetically dysregulated or dorsal collapsed and get anywhere, right? You can't come together and have the difficult conversations. You have to have enough safety in the system. So we need enough people so that we reach a tipping point. So there are more people who are regulated than dysregulated, and then we can begin to have those conversations. So there's the hope, but the despair is on how that happens. Yeah. It's so important to understand that developmental trajectory of whether it's caregivers or a community, depending on even the culture in which care, what is caregiver. And it's so easy and it's been so present in what's called attachment theory for the, no, I'm not explaining that to you, Deb, but <laughs> to the other people of shaming the caregiver for not being a regulatory force or available for individuals. And when the resources are not there for an adult to be regulated, because it's not a just and equitable world, how can we expect them to then just magically show up for those who were just born in that way? Right. We can't. I mean, if that is their absolute desire. They may want to. Oh, yeah. Exactly. The desire, but that's the brain's desire, right? But the heart's, you know, when we think about the nervous system, the circuits go to the heart and it regulates your your energy and your heart rate. So the brain's desire is, yes, to, to love, care, support, keep safe. But what happens in the nervous system is there's not enough capacity to, it's in a survival mode, understandably. And survival is incompatible with safety. They don't come together. And so what we need to do is we have to help people, the adults in the world, what do you need to feel safe enough so that you could then send that to this little one who you dearly love and want to support and, and have be safe, right? Because the desire is there. Right. I know I've worked with so many families who you know, were involved in child protective services and, and you know, it, it's not for lack of loving their child. Right. It's for all of these other reasons and, and helping them come to a place where they have enough of whatever it is that's missing. Because then when they come to that place of biological regulation, all of the other emerges. Right, the ability to care, the ability to connect it, it all is dependent on the nervous system being regulated enough. Yeah. Yeah. So if we look underneath the symptom or underneath the, the problem to the nervous system, that's what we need to do. We need to help regulate the nervous system. Yeah. So important. And in your work, polyamory has really been so important <laughs> in that process. <laughs> You and your polyamory. Well, this time I was kidding. This was, that was called a pullback. I love it. You know, <laughs> the work that you and Stephen Porges have done in the realm of polyvagal theory is in safe and sound protocol and, you know, the rhythms, rhythm of regulation, all your work of, of restoring this is not just on this small individual level. We're really talking about a revelation on a huge, not just community, not just culture, but potentially a world-changing process of restoring the world's nervous system. Yes. I love that way of thinking about it. It's this global collective nervous system. I like the world's nervous system, which is suffering right now, right? It's suffering. And when our collective nervous system suffers, we all suffer. So yes, my hope, my dream is that everybody begins to understand their nervous system so that they can begin to shape their system toward the direction of connection, toward the direction of safety. And it's within everyone's capacity to understand that, right? I just think it should be common information. Everybody understands where I am. Here's my nervous system. What do I need to do? And you say that, and it's like, you know, I was in fifth grade in science class and I learned the autonomic nervous system and then I went to grad school and dissected one. <laughs> but that didn't actually mean I knew it or had the somatic or embodiment practice of being able to register myself and, and the states of my nervous system. And so I just want to clarify, it's not just a cognitive understanding, it's truly a fully felt sense or embodiment of it. 
Yeah, we do. We take in the theory here in our brain, but then we have to bring it down into our body and experience it and get to know it in that way. Because just understanding that there's a dorsal state of disconnection up here is a starting point, but understanding it in in my lived experience is what needs to happen because then it's like, oh, now I get it. You know, and I really do think it would people get that embodied moment. It's a before and after because you can't unknow that. You feel it, you know it, you get to experience your states, and then you can't not know that again. So we just have to help everybody get that beginning experience. And then it's like, oh, now I can feel it. And usually people are interested in going deeper, wanting more. What are some of your favorite practices for that? I mean, I know that's such a big question, and um, I want to put you on the spot anyways. Yeah, thank you. I get that. (laughs) I want to see if you can be anchored and disturbed. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, I I want to see that in action. (laughs) Truly. You You know, it's interesting because my favorite practices, again, are probably not somebody else's, but some of my favorite practices are, again, I'm going to join the band because music is a way for me to move through things, to feel things. The research on music says that it has this paradoxical effect where I can be with my dorsal collapse invisibility, but I can even enjoy it because I'm not alone in it. Music can take me there. And, you know, those, those beautiful, sad cello pieces that take you to that, that place of longing, right? So I use music and I invite people to create playlists and because it's easy to reach for music. One of the ways I judge a resource is by how easy is it to get to right? Do I have to work really hard? Because, you know, again, you're talking to someone that's a dorsal dweller, right? And so as a dorsal dweller, I need something that's easy to reach for. You as a pterodactyl might have something that you can use more energy to reach for, but not me. So I have my music and I push a button and there it is. I love audiobooks because I love people's voices and I, and that can that can pull me. You know, I love you'll laugh, but I have a chair that I got just a few months ago that's in my bedroom and it glides. It also swivels and reclines, but it glides. Okay. That gliding motion. I'm telling you, I start every day gliding reading the newspaper, drinking my coffee. And and everybody in my world now knows it. And they, they'll email me your first thing in the morning. Are you gliding? I go, yep. <laughs> I mean. Are you glimmering and gliding, Deb Dana? Are you glimmering and gliding? I'm glimmering and gliding. But again, the task is to find the things that speak to your nervous system. One of my daughters goes out for a walk every morning. That's a regulating resource for her before she ever starts her day, right? So not for me. That's Okay. Right. I have another daughter who loves the bicycle and the rowing machine. Great. Still again, not for me, but everybody finds their own sort of thing that they can depend on. Right. I want it to be something predictable. I can depend on it. And I want a menu of choices because some days I don't want to listen to music. Some days I want to hear a human voice instead. Some days I want to glide. I don't want anything in my, any sound at all. So that's the work is to find out through trial and error, what works for your nervous system. So what do you do? What do you reach for? It used to be drama. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I think what I reach for to help just center myself, to feel present, to feel like I have that window of capacity to move through whatever's here. I usually start the morning with a, a yoga practice and then I will work out for six hours and I know Deb. Yeah, I'm not sure that. Yeah. Deb, it's, it's true. Okay. It might be five, four. Okay. It's one a hour. A little exaggerated. Yes. No, uh-huh. I would never exaggerate to you, Deb. No, never. No. Stop flirting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that usually really centers me for my day. I, I got to move. Sounding work. I usually. I feel so bad for my neighbors, but I I really love, I have a a long-standing practice of Linklater technique, sound work that I do, and I integrate it into my movement practice. And just that sort of vibration really wakes me up and anchors me. Yeah, I love it. So when you need to reach for a resource, what do you grab? I have a few friends, actually. Even if it don't end up calling them, I might just type their name in for a text. That sometimes is enough for me 
it's just like knowing that someone's there on the other end and really does that for me. I have that as well. Yeah. I have a couple of people who I just send an emoji to and they get it immediately. You know, it's like my dorsal emoji and they get it because when I'm in that place, I don't want anything. I just want somebody to say, I got you. I hear you. And they could send me an emoji back. I'm good. That's it. What is the emoji you send? You know, the one that looks sort of like the scream, the hollowed out one. That's my dorsal emoji. And that's like, I can push the button and and it goes out there. It's like my, my, my bat Mm -hmm. signal, right? (laughs) (laughs) My dorsal back signal. Can you, by the way, define dorsal? Dorsal is that place where your body is drained of energy, where you, you know, sort of, you can be just sort of going through the motions, but you don't really have the energy to care. Or you're not really present doing it. That's sort of the, the first flavor of dorsal, you know, a more intense dorsal is, you know, you just want to sit down and cry and be done. I can't do it anymore. It's that I can't do it. That's dorsal. Whereas sympathetic, you know, that fight flight is a flood of energy, flood. So you go from this flood to the draining. So yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Mm. And I like that we all do. We all go there. I mean, I, I joke, I say I'm a dorsal dweller because that is, I call that my home away from home. We all have a home in ventral. Every human has a home in ventral, right? But then we have a home away from home. Mine is dorsal. It's where I end up when I'm feeling overwhelmed. And I also know sympathetic. I know that place. It's not that I don't visit there. I just don't go there as often. But boy, I can get to that fight flight place. Absolutely. As you go to dorsal as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. After six hours of working out, you bet yourself. Exactly. Because it didn't get you where you wanted to go. Right. (laughs) You know, we joke about that. But exercise does not always get us the relief that we want and get us to ventral. And some people do obsessively exercise because the system is looking for regulation and it's using that pathway, but it's not getting them there. So I like to invite people to say, if you're reaching for this and you're walking this pathway, is it getting you toward ventral? Because if it's not, try something different. Don't keep banging your head against that wall. Because your nervous system is saying clearly, this is not the path to take, or at least not today. So no six hours, you know, at, at, after four hours, assess, would you? Four hours. <laughs> I, I will do that just for you. <laughs> Deb, we're at the part of our show where we do our advice column. So this advice column is called Dear Midwestern Mom, which is perfect for you as a mom in the Midwest as well. So I'm going to read the letter from Marge that Marge wrote in, and then I'll give it a shot first, and then I'll turn it over to the other Midwestern mom in the house. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So let's see what Marge said. Okay. Dear Midwestern mom, I am all up in arms about inflation. I feel like it's really stopping me from pursuing my dreams and a life of joy. Sincerely, Marge. Okay, Marge. Yeah, I hear you. Oh, gosh. Well, Marge, at a certain point in my life, my joints used to hurt so bad from inflation, too. And uh, I read in an article in Midwestern Daily, which it's actually published monthly, that you should eat turmeric and ginger. And so I remember I started eating a candied ginger with a splash of turmeric every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And I have to say, yeah. Yeah, I think it really helped my inflation. So I hope that helps you, Marge. Deb, what kind of advice would you give to Marge? <laughs> okay. Well, let's 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 think about that. I I love your advice about eating differently so that you could feel more healthy and that could manage both your worry about inflation and your inflammation. Oh. Because, again, I got to do this through a polyvagal lens. When you are worried, right, as Marge is worried about inflation, right, so she's in that sympathetic anxiety place that keeps her from being able to move into any other joy because it's an either or. I'm either in survival or I'm in enough safety to feel some joy. And... When you're in that place, 
the research also tells us is that you experience inflammation. Your your experience of inflammation is increased. So you are right on there as well as... Yeah, Deb, I know. Gosh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in order to manage, you know, our, our physical being and also our emotional state, again, although it's hard to do, we want to be on the lookout for a glimmer, right? Be on the lookout for something that is not your anxiety survival moment. And when we look for glimmers, we don't discount the survival energy. This is not an either or, this is a let's have both and, right? All that worry is there. I get it, Margin, you're carrying that with you. And if you begin to look for the moments that are not that, you'll find them and your system will begin to reorganize just a bit. And you got to be patient with it. It's a slow process. And to eat the ginger candy. I mean, the ginger candy, I get the turmeric on top. I'm not sure. Let's leave the turmeric off the top, okay? <laughs> What's funny is I won't say who so live, but I, I know someone very well who was recovering from neuropathy and was told ginger was helpful. And she was eating like a bag of candied ginger every day. And I was like, oh, is it helping? And she was like, I think so. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to say anything more about like, the sugar and inflammatory responses or anything like that or the processed nope. food here or the fact that there might not even be ginger in there, but just ginger extract of like, regardless. Because it was helping. It was helping. Because it was helping. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to zip it and support. I mean, that's the question. Is it helping? Is it moving you toward well-being? Right. And then, okay. I mean, if it's not truly something that is harming you, then okay. Go for it. Yeah. And then we'll let's assess in another six weeks when you've eaten 5,000 bags. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Delightful. Oh. Deb. <laughs> I, and, you know, as I say that, I, I laugh. Again, I just also say the assessing that we do for ourselves, like I try something and I think, is it working? I do need to give it long enough. But six weeks is way too long, right? For the nervous system, for those changes. Like, you know, after, after a week or two, you know, what's shifting in what direction is it going? So just wanted to put that in there. Don't wait six weeks of eating bags and bags of whatever. <laughs> Great advice. Deb, it has been an absolute pleasure as always. Check out Deb and my band wherever bands play. These days, I don't even actually. I'll be the one on the drums. Yes. And I will be the pterodactyl on the microphone. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for listening to this episode. If you liked it, leave us a review. If you didn't like it, leave someone else a review. And with that, have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today. <laughs>